What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined with Jared, as always. And today we have our What's first up, repeat guest, uh, Dr. Kip Davis. How's it going, Kip? It's going well. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for coming. I on. am I am honored to be your uh, your first return guest. And and surprised, I think, too. I, I thought you guys would have had uh had like a like a shroud dude <laughs> yeah. back before yeah before I mean, me. we... or is or is the shroud played out is it uh oh no the shroud has never played out <laughs> shroud is, is the it's an eternal well <laughs> uh now we, we haven't had too many shroud people on we've had plenty of people yelling at us in the comments but we haven't had too many <laughs> shroudies on the actual channel maybe we should do that one of these not, days not shroudies themselves but right. you had the you had the one guy on who was really good. The, yeah. the Hugh Ferry, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. We should, yeah. We should really get Hugh back him. on. That was that was very entertaining. Yeah, that was. He but should be your second returning guest. <laughs> but today we're not talking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, no. We are talking about the Bible, specifically prophecies in the Bible. So uh, this came up because a very common argument we hear from Christians about why you can believe that the Bible is true or that Jesus returned from the dead or whatever, um, is that prophecy was fulfilled. And usually they're referring to prophecy found in the Old Testament. And so we thought we'd get Kip on to talk about a biblical prophecy, where it comes from, uh, how was it viewed in its original context by the people who wrote it and the people who were intended to read it, and uh, whether any of these prophecies that are usually pointed to were actually fulfilled reasonably. So, yeah. and Christians have a long history of like looking to the Hebrew scriptures and mining it for stuff to prove their point. A lot of the early church fathers did this as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of what you hear from Christians today can be traced back to some of that stuff. Um, my favorite church father origin had like this three levels of the scriptures, you know, the body, the soul, and yeah. the spirit. And you felt you could read something into every little thing, even like simple stuff, like don't eat shrimp would be meaning something in the spiritual world. And so, um, but the people who wrote the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures or the old Testament weren't actually Christians and didn't do that way. So we thought we could what? bring Kip on here to see like, <laughs> what did the people who actually wrote it, how did they view these prophecies? I feel like Origen and then maybe later Augustine, I, I, I have a, a, a soft spot um, for them as perhaps pioneers in uh, the development of what we might call uh, later, much, much later on, Christy. It was like nascent uh, yeah. critical biblical scholarship where, you know, I mean, they came to recognize, hey, you know what? The text, it it like means a whole... It, it means a whole bunch of different things. And, uh, you know, it, it's sort of, it sort of introduced this idea that, you, you know, you can, you can just ignore, you can recognize that, yeah, the text says something completely different than what I think it means, but then you can ignore that. Right. So, was it an origin who put together, um, like there was eight different translations and he put them all together so he could look at them. It was like the hepto. Oh, the sour hexapla. I, was that yeah, him that did that? Uh, yeah, that's 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 Origins work. And we don't yeah. have we have uh fragments of uh one or two manuscripts of the Cyrohexapla, I believe. But it's it's pretty uh it's pretty wild. 
Yeah. Uh, and good for Origin, right? To 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 feel as uh, to 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 be as concerned about the the text as he was to 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 decide to do that, right? Well, uh, a lot of good did him. He was deemed a heretic, and then you know, know. <laughs> ostracized. Well, I mean, who isn't a heretic, really? You know. <laughs> It's true. It's true. You just had to, you know, if you were a heretic in your hometown, you just had to move. That's yeah. right. And someone else was. Yeah. So before we dive into this, uh, real quick, uh, Kip, you've got actually, I think one of the things that led that kind of prompted me to reach out to you, you've been doing a series on your channel about uh, prophecy. So you want to tell everybody a little bit about that so they can uh, go check that out when they're done with this? Yeah, totally. I'm doing, so I've got a, a long form series all about the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's really in depth. By the time I'm done, there's going to be like 30 hours <laughs> of, of information all about the Dead Sea Scrolls for free for everyone, which is, I think, pretty great. But uh, uh, I've, I've now finished uh, six parts of uh, of this series there are uh four i think that are published on youtube there's one more coming this week and then i still have another one um that's available on my patreon i i'm very excited about it um because it's yeah it's just super fun it's uh it it features a special a special guest a secret super secret special guest and uh and it uh, it delves into the issues of of uh, canon, uh, understanding the canon of scripture relative to early Jewish literature, and this important connection that constantly gets made to um, Star Wars. So, hmm. so if Wars, if people Wars. wanted to watch that early and they didn't want to wait for it, how would they do that? They would go and sign up at my Patreon for oh, as wow. little as as four dollars a month and you can get early access to to all my videos if if you just can't wait if you need to if you need to find out what's going on so people need to yeah. do that and the rapture they, could happen any day now so you don't yeah, want to so wait you don't want to wait yeah <laughs> it could so uh but i think what what uh what jordan is um is referencing is the fourth video in uh, okay so no there are more than six aren't there sorry i've i've already lost count <laughs> <laughs> um but in the fourth video uh which is called um uh, the prophet it's like the dead sea scrolls uh the pesharim and, and prophecy and um it's exploring this idea of how early jews thought about their texts how they thought about them as inspired or god's word or as prophetic and ways in which they they develop those ideas in their own time relative to their own situation so um and i bet that's why that's why jordan reached out because he he saw the series and he went wow that's a great idea kip seems to know something about this yeah well since you brought it up why don't you paint the picture for us how did uh jews in their own time the people who were writing the audiences were written to how did they perceive these prophecies what was the the kind of mindset there so i've got um now um I'll, I'll i'll say something else here quickly i have in addition to the stuff that i do on my on my youtube channel with the dead sea scrolls i actually have a whole online course all about religion in the uh, old testament the people who 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 practiced 
the the people who who wrote the texts of the Old Testament, the religions they practice, and the evidence for that, and and how uh, the Bible represents that. I have a whole course devoted to that, and within my uh, eighteen lecture course, which is available at MVP courses, I'm just shilling. It's it's still time <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, so um the uh one of the lectures that i um that i teach in this course uh is all about um prophecy in early israel so in preparation for today i thought i would just pull out some of the material directly from my course and walk through a few things so if i can share my screen and to start what i what i thought i'd do i know you guys uh had you, you guys sent me um i want to share the entire screen yeah. here we, go. we send you an outline okay. and you just threw it out the window and, just... and i just tossed it i said <laughs> i said nah we're not doing that um well no i've i've actually tried to follow follow some of the outline so uh but i i thought it's important to start from uh addressing this question of of you know where did all of this begin who were prophets and what the heck were they doing uh, back in uh, in in early Israel in the pre uh, in the pre Jewish period? Um, I'll just make one one uh, qualification here. When we talk about Judaism from a scholarly perspective, we're talking about the religion that developed in Palestine and in uh, communities of like minded people in uh, uh, Egypt. And in uh, Babylon, uh, which developed out of this old Israelite temple religion that was practiced in uh, in Palestine during the early to the mid part of the Iron Age. So, I, and this is where the, this idea of of prophets and prophecy kind of emerged, and and, it, and where it sort of began. So, um, right away, it's important to note that uh, originally. Uh, a prophet, and the Hebrew word is navi, just prophet. Uh, the prophet was an important part of the royal retinue in the ancient Near Eastern world, not just in Israel, but throughout the ancient Near East. We know about um, prophets from all sorts of different kinds of texts, uh, in particular, uh, significantly from the Mari tablets, which date to the 18th century BCE. So uh, these were discovered in 1933, and they comprise over 20,000 cuneiform texts, uh, most of which are royal correspondences, correspondences from the king to, uh, to his subjects and to other, other nations. Uh, within this archive, though, survive a number of very interesting prophecies that were delivered to the uh, Mari king. His name was Zimri Lim. Uh, and there's some connection implied in these prophecies to the royal chapel or to the, the, the temple where, where the king worshipped his gods. So, um, yeah, so, and, and this can, well, while this connection is uncertain, a number of these figures appear to be court or temple singers of some sort. And interestingly, in Mari at least, prophets seem to have probably been eunuchs. So that's sort of the background. 
prophets uh, the within the Murray tablets are called answerers, ecstatics, diviners, which is a uh, a cognate for the word prophet in Hebrew. They were connected to the royal chapel. And they were probably eunuchs. What so the, that's <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that's going to be get, a hard uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> you you may not have had a choice. I don't know. <laughs> You may have, you may have, uh, somebody might have seen potential and just decided to capitalize on that. So um, we see examples of court prophets within the Hebrew Bible. Most famously, uh, Nathan was the court prophet of David, uh, the second king of the supposedly United Kingdom of Israel. And we read about him fairly extensively in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in chapter 12, and in 1 Kings chapter 1. So just a, a, a couple of uh, um, passages here from the Bible in uh, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 3, it says, When the king was settled in his palace and Yahweh had given him safety from all the enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, here I am dwelling in this house of cedar, while the ark of Yahweh abides in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go and do whatever you have in mind, for Yahweh is with you. So, and this, this seems to be the, the function of Nathan, the function of, of court prophets throughout the ancient Near East was in an advisory capacity. Um, kings would consult prophets in an effort to see if they could receive some special insight from the gods, believing that the prophet had a direct conduit of communication to the gods. So this is basically what David is doing. But there's there's one instance where Nathan actually unprompted comes to David and will and and you know heavily criticizes his way of doing things. We read about that in Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter twelve. Um, in First Kings chapter 1, verses 7 to 8, uh, this is actually a text that I am reading with uh, my good friend and colleague Joshua Bowen. We're doing Hebrew readings on my channel uh, two Thursdays a month. Every second Thursday we're doing it this week. Uh, we're in verse 5 one. right now. Don't understand you the word it. Hebrew, but it was very entertaining anyway. So. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. So... In uh, in in First Kings, chapter one, uh, one of David's sons mounts a uh, an attempted coup. He attempts to um, uh, David is old, and he sees his chance to take hold of the the kingdom. And we read in verse seven to eight that uh, the words of Adonijah, his son, uh, were with Joab, son of Shaduiah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they supported Adonijah. So these are the, the people who backed Adonijah in his rebellion. But then we read that, um, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't include the text. We then read of those who continue to support David, and they were um, uh, Beniahu, the son of uh, Jehoiada, and then um, the an, another priest by the name of Zadok, and importantly Nathan, uh, the prophet, was a supporter of David. So prophets originally were basically just uh, just advisors. They had special connections to um, to the gods, and and the king would consult them for uh, for advice. Kind of like, a, like some... a, a priestly position, sort of. Yeah. Way to them, to, but not necessarily. So they're kind of like providing that 
that viewpoint in the court, but not necessarily projecting forward as people would normally think of prophecy or prophets today. Not so much. And we're, we'll, we'll talk through a couple of texts. I've, I've got a couple of examples of texts and, and we'll talk through a few of these just to get a sense of what prophets did in the old kingdom in this, this early period um, in like the early to mid iron age. So uh, one of my favorite uh, stories of a, an encounter with the prophets appears in first Kings chapter 22 verses one to eight. So, and I'll just read the whole thing here for you. There was a lull of three years with no war between Aram and Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. In the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah came to visit the king of Israel. Even though he's unnamed, this is the king Ahab. Um, the king of Israel said to his courtiers, You know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we do nothing to recover it from the hands of the king of Aram. He said to Jehoshaphat, will you come with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? So he's asking him if he'll ally with him and help him to go and get his territory back. Jehoshaphat answered the king, I will do what you do. My troops will be your troops. My horses shall be your horses. But Jehoshaphat said further to the king of Israel, please inquire first of Yahweh. So the king of Israel gathered the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, shall I march upon Ramoth Gilead for battle, or shall I not? And the answer from these 400 prophets who have been gathered is resounding. March, they said, and my Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. Je then Jehoshaphat, the king from the southern kingdom, Judah, asked, isn't there another prophet of Yahweh here through whom we can inquire? He's suspicious, right? All of these, like 400 prophets, and they all have this same unanimous answer, strikes him as suspicious. He's got this sense that, oh, these guys are a bunch of yes men. So he's like, come on, isn't there somebody else uh, out there who we might inquire uh, of Yahweh? So the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat and said, and you can hear it in his voice when he says this, I, I like to think that he sighs. <sighs> there is one more man through whom <laughs> we can inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, only misfortune. And his name is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. So, it, it, I'm not going to read any more of the story, but it's pretty great because because <laughs> Micaiah, the son of Imlah, actually uh, is given he 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 uh, he gives the king intentionally gives the king bad advice, <laughs> and the king loses and the king gets very angry with him. Um, but uh, and then disaster ensues. It's a great story, but it's it's a story which I think illustrates the point here pretty pretty clearly. The office of uh the prophet this was an institution this was a job that people had within the royal court and it, it seems functionally different from how we tend to think of it in the modern day uh, from how we know it through the hebrew prophets which is this large collection of literature in uh the old testament so um Simply put, uh, the prophets at first were diviners, 
and and connected to the royal court uh, initially, and they were depended on by kings to provide them uh, invaluable advice in terms of well what the gods wanted them to do. So kind of like a, a court magician or a court priest who could say, the king could say, I want to do this. How do the gods feel about that? Yeah, exactly. And as as you can see, um, I think the story, one of the things that the story from, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 8 illustrates in the response of Jehoshaphat is that there wasn't, I don't think there was an expectation that all your prophets were going to provide you the same advice. Okay. There could be some, there could be some, some, some competing opinions. And like, you know, like any modern ruler who surrounds themselves with a, with an advisory council, uh, he's going to weigh the options. So uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it begins. So how do we move from there to prophets being kind of just a role, an advisory role, a sort of diviner of the divine will to the more modern understanding of a prophet who's like making predictions into the future that come true. Yeah. So this happens, I think this happens, there's no, there's, there's nothing that we can clearly map onto history here, but I think this is something that, that happens fairly progressively over a long period of time whereby you'll see on the slide here i say that diviners and court prophets were sharp critics of institutionalized kingship i think smart rulers would not just have yes men in their courts they would have people who challenge their opinions like micah son of imla uh and this is where some of the uh the the ideals and the sense of what I have called uh, non-titled or non-institutionalized prophets sort of uh, came from. They came out of this idea of resistance to the, uh, the ruling administration. But some of this goes back much further back than, than even the, the period of, of the kingdoms of uh, Judah and Israel. Uh, we see and early, we, we see before uh, Saul becomes the, the king in uh, Jerusalem, or sorry, in Gibeah, uh, that there's earlier attempts to establish uh, a monarchy that all fail. And interestingly, there's preserved in some of these early texts in the judges, um, reports or echoes of, of voices from people who don't want to have a king. Um, and, uh, I think the, the, uh, the nature of what we understand to be prophecy as it appears in the Hebrew Bible kind of comes out of, out of this, this, um, uh, this resistance to the monarchy. So there is a, uh, there's a story in Judges chapter nine of, uh, Abimelech who is made, the uh, the king in Shechem. Shechem is is uh, later becomes the city uh, Samaria, where the northern kingdom um, was centered. Um, so Abimelech becomes the king in in Shechem, but there is a man who is uh, a fierce opponent to just this very idea of institutionalized kingship, and he, his name is Jotham, and he delivers this very neat 
parable. And I think that this is illustrative of sort of where this idea of state resistance uh, and prophecy kind of go hand in hand, where the where the hand uh, meets the glove. And I'll just I'll just read the uh, the the text here for you now, starting in verse seven uh, through fifteen. So this is Jotham uh, speaking. Uh, well, first of all, it says all the lords of Shechem gathered, and everyone of Bet Milo, they went and made Abimelech the king at the standing terebinth. This is a this this is like a a, a, a deity, a cult mm -hmm. object, um, which is in Shechem. When Jotham was informed, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim. He raised his voice, called out, and said, "Listen to me, lords of Shechem." And God will listen to you. So he's basically projecting himself as a deliverer um, of a message from God. If you listen to me, God's going to listen to you. Then he tells this really neat parable. The trees went to anoint a king over themselves. They said first to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree replied, have I, through whom God and men were honored, stopped yielding my rich oil that I should go and wave above the trees. So the trees then said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree replied, have I stopped yielding my sweetness, my delicious fruit that I should go and wave above the trees. So the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine replied, have I stopped yielding my, uh, my new wine, which gladdens God and men that I should go and wave above the trees. Then all the trees said to the thorn bush, you come and reign over us. And the thorn bush said to the trees, if you are acting honorably in anointing me king over you, come and take shelter in my shade. But if not, may fire issue from the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So he tells this parable um, as you listen to this, what do you think the moral of this story is? What is the message that's being communicated by Jotham to, to the people of Shechem in this cute little story of trees? Well, the first few trees don't seem too keen about putting put being put in charge because like they've basically got a role that was ordained by God that's going well. And, you know, to, to do otherwise would be to go outside of what God ordained. That's what I get from it. Yeah, what what why does the thornbush why is the thornbush so eager to uh to take the job? Uh presumably the thornbush is a jerk <laughs> and it's not a good tree. I like it, yeah, it's it, I I like the uh the 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 uh conclusion that um um James Kugel, he taught uh Bible at Harvard for many years, but he says of this story only worthless, low, power-hungry scoundrels are interested in ruling. So you this know what? Is... I endorse this message, and <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a good parable, right? Yeah. But this, I think, is exemplary of early prophecy. This is it's it's a critique of the administration. It's it's a it's a pop. A populous, a, a popular level, um, grassroots uh, condemnation of the rulers, and this is sort of where 
uh, this idea of of prophets as as being proclaimers of the word of God, um, you know, for the common people, uh, sort of comes from. And th these are people we know of. These these are I've I've distinguished between what I call prophets who are are part of the royal retinue and non-titled prophets or, or prophets who seem to just uh, rise up out of the out of the populace. So Isaiah Ben Amotz, famously, he's he's uh, he's got a book with like sixty six chapters in in it named after him. He's closely connected to. The court of the king. He's he's an associate of the kings, uh, in particular Ahaz and uh, Hezekiah. Um, but we have examples of these other non-title prophets. One of the most interesting is this fellow by the name of Balaam, son of Baor, and we read about him in Numbers. Uh, I think it's chapter twenty-two through through twenty-four. He's called upon by a a uh, I believe it's the the king of Moab. Uh, at this time, the the Israelites are approaching the promised land. They haven't entered the promised land. Moab, the the king of Moab, is really nervous about him about this. So he calls on this prophet Balaam to basically call down the curses of God upon the uh, upon the Israelites in order to to stop them. From uh, from taking his land, so in uh, an example of of what Balaam would do, he would hire himself out in this instance to to you know anybody who needed his services. He wasn't attached to the court of the king of Moab. He just he was like a like a prophet for hire, a mercenary um, wizard, <laughs> a mercenary mercenary prophets exactly. So Numbers twenty four four to five. Uh, we read the word of Balaam, son of Beor, word of the man whose eye is true, word of him who hears God's speech, who beholds visions from the Almighty, prostrate but with eyes unveiled. Um, and he would deliver these these oracles for um, for the the king of Moab. Balaam's really interesting because we actually know about him outside of the Bible. Uh, Balaam is actually mentioned in this very interesting plaster in scripture from Tel Deir Allah, which uh, comes from about 700 BCE. And I think this is an interesting, this is a key point in terms of how we think about dating some of these texts too. Most likely 700 BCE is right around the time of when we think some of these stories featuring Balaam would have been told and you know, eventually written down. Balaam appears to have been a, a fairly well-known, widely traveled uh, prophet in the region. So we've got this really interesting uh, plaster inscription. I'll read a little bit of this to you. It says, this is the inscription of Balaam, son of Baor. He was a divine seer, and the gods came to him at night, and they spoke to him according to the vision of El, and they said to Balaam, son of Beor, this will be, there's a break here, do in the future. No man has seen what you have heard. And Balaam rose on the next day. Um, and it, there's some broken parts of the text. It goes on to say, he wept and his people came to him and they said to Balaam, son of Beor, why do you fast? Why do you weep? And he said to them, be seated and I will show you what the Shaddaiin have done and go behold the workings of the Elohim or the gods. 
the Elohim have joined forces in the Shaddaim. These are like dark spirits, the Shaddaim. Uh, so the Shaddaim have established council and they have said to Shagar, we Yishtar, sew up the cover of heavens in dense clouds so that darkness, not brilliance, will be there. Concealment and not bristling or light, perhaps, that you may instill dread, darkness, and never raise your voice again. For the swift crane will shriek insult to the eagle and the voice of vultures will resound distress and trouble, the chicks of the heron, sparrow and cluster of eagles, pigeons and birds of, and on and on and on it goes. So um, he's sort of, he, he functions in a similar sense as like your, your court prophets, except he's not actually attached directly to an individual king or an individual temple. He's a mercenary. And he seems to speak on behalf of not just one God, not just the God, Yahweh, within this text, he speaks for El. He talks about the Elohim, or the gods, within a, a divine council. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very cool, very interesting text. So, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, that one seems to be written in between Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. Um, how much of that, so when I'm looking back at some of these prophets, it seems like a lot of them, in my mind, were always written ex post facto, like looking back on situations. Um, yeah. But, you're, but yeah. you're saying there was a history of prophets that kind of led up to where we get to like yeah. messianic, what we would consider messianic prophets. Yeah. So exactly. And we'll talk about that a little bit now. Uh, the man of God in First Kings 13 is another one of my favorites. We all know about Elijah. First Kings chapter 18. So um, what basically happened, things, things went this way for, you know, many years. Um, the prophets would, would advise the king within the court. Uh, prophets would rise up from among the common people to, to provide um, crit outside critiques of the uh, of the office of of the king and uh, and his administration and how seriously um, the the actual uh, rulers took these people we have no idea we don't know um, you know how they they came from uh, some of these people uh, came out of out of these these uh, these outside these outsider classes into um, in into uh the the halls of power so um yeah so what about messianic prophecies um so, yeah what is a messianic prophecy yeah we <laughs> so first this? of all let's talk about let, let's talk about what happened um the kingdom of israel uh the northern kingdom is uh destroyed by assyria in 722 bce there's a so the kingdom's done it's over there's a mass migration of people south into judah into jerusalem uh which is the ruling seat of the uh the the, the house of david and uh it lasts for another uh 100 150 years thereabouts up until 586 bce when ultimately uh the babylonians come and uh and and they conquer um Jerusalem, they destroy the temple and they exile all the leading citizens. These are these are people who and, and the this was the purpose of, of of exile was to take anybody 
who could cause trouble uh, back home with you where you can keep an eye on them. So they didn't take everybody with them. They just took people who had means, wealthy people, people who were um, part of the uh, aristocracy, part of the temple. Uh, these are the people who went uh, into exile in Babylon. And it's during this period where the, the, the office of prophets starts to shift. Um, the sharp critiques of the, the earlier prophets against the institution of the king started to become uh, uh, fulfillments. They started to be viewed as fulfillments of um, uh, the sins of the people. Uh, the, the kingdom of, of Judah was destroyed and the kingdom of Israel were destroyed because their administrations were corrupt, because their kings uh, did not pay proper respect to Yahweh. And so many of these prophecies which were corrected, collected earlier, which were part of this, um, you know, part of these inside and outside critiques of the administration in the moment, uh, started to be viewed as predictions of what was going to happen and fulfillments of those predictions. So, and this goes in a couple of different directions. In the, uh, in, on the one hand, uh, you have uh, an, an, this anti-monarchic propaganda starts to become very fiercely critical of the, the current rulers and starts to look forward to a day when there will be an ideal king who is going to come and finally, you know, sit on the throne, uh, on David's throne in Judah. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, th this is, this is a, 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 a satisfaction of the uh, words spoken by Yahweh uh, to Solomon in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He promises that he will have an eternal kingdom. And of course, when the, the Babylonian exile, when, when the conquest of Jerusalem happens, it ends the, it, it ends the, the, the kingdom. Uh, David's dynasty is broken. And people are looking and going, well, the prof, you know, this promise can't be wrong. It must be fulfilled in this ideal divine kingship. Um, so this is sort of the direction you start to see some of this rhetoric. Uh, Jeremiah is particularly famous as a fierce um, opponent of the, the kings in Jerusalem in his lifetime. And uh, he, he starts to project forward to this time when there will be an ideal king. I'll read just a, a section of uh, interesting text from Jeremiah 33 to illustrate this. Uh, so this is Jeremiah uh, uh, proclaiming, he says, Thus says Yahweh of armies, or Yahweh Tzabaot, in this ruined place. So he's speaking after uh, the Babylonians have just razed the entire city and broken uh, the Davidic line. He says, in this ruined place, without man and beast, and in all of its towns, there shall be again a pasture for shepherds where they can rest their flocks in the towns of the hill country, in the towns of the Shafala, in the towns of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, and in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah. Sheep shall pass again under the hands of one who counts them. 
said Yahweh. See, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will raise up a true branch. And the Hebrew here is Tzemach Tzedakah of David's line, and he shall do what is right in the land. In those days, Judah shall be delivered, and Israel shall dwell secure. And this is what shall this is what he shall be called. He shall be called Yahweh Tzedekenu, which means Yahweh is a righteousness. Importantly, this name forms a play on words with the name of the last king of Judah, Tzedek Yahu, of whom Jeremiah was fiercely critical. For thus says Yahweh, there shall never be an end to men of David's line who sit upon the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall there ever be an end to the line of the Levitical priests before me, of those who present burnt offerings and turn meal offerings into smoke and perform sacrifices. So this message then is meant to denigrate the, the, the now, the, the current regime, which, which has just been broken uh, by the Babylonian invasion. But by drawing it into contrast with the future perfect regime that would be led by God's anointed ruler in the distant future. And this is where this word Messiah comes from. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which just means the anointed one. It's applied within the Old Testament to, to kings when they become, when they assume the office of, of, uh, of, of the kingdom or to priests when they uh, assume their office uh, within the temple. Over time, of course, so that's, that's it for my, my presentation, but over time, this is basically, uh, th this idea gets um, turned into uh, an expectation for these, this idealized figure who's going to come back and finally fix all of Judah's problems. And this is the feature of much of the uh, the writing and the thinking throughout the Second Temple period, leading up through the life of Jesus and into, um, you know, up to the, the the destruction of the Second Temple and beyond. Even is this idea that, um, you know, uh, an ideal uh, ruler from the line of David who is going to be divinely empowered is going to come and restore uh the nation so looking at the development you started with uh prophets who are like courtly priests to advise the king and kind of divine the will of the gods for the purpose of the court then you yep. led to more of like a kind of a street preacher feel i'm criticizing what's going on i'm speaking for god and god's saying this about what's happening right now Mm -hmm. And then as as calamity strikes and the, the kings are failing, they've been conquered and everything, uh, they looked back at those critiques and kind of brought them to their current. They were right. Yeah, they were yeah. right. Yeah. Right. And so that I think you're if I'm hearing you correctly, that kind of signaled almost a tonal shift from this. I'm talking about what's happening right now to they may have been talking about what's happening right then, but also they were talking about what's happening to us now today. See, this is, I think this is the thing that, that, that people invariably miss all the time when it comes to understanding 
uh, prophecy within the ancient world. It didn't have to do with the distant future. Almost never. Prophecies were about what's happening to us in the moment. Even within the like like the Hebrew prophets um, who were serving in the court, it all had to do with, I mean, you look at uh, uh, Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Should we go and fight the king of Adam today? <laughs> you know, what's going to be the result? And the prophets say, yeah, go do it. So this is this is basically what prophecy looks like in the ancient world. I can imagine the king's like, hey, should I do this invasion? And the prophet's like, you know, in 4,000 years, there's going to be this war. And the king's like, cool. So anyway, can we talk about Who cares, about, like... right? Like, I don't care about that. I'm concerned about what's happening now. Okay. So, okay. And that's, yeah. So moving out of that sort of... Uh, that regime we get into the books that uh christians today look back and project kind of like uh messianic expectations on yeah. um before uh, we're gonna dive we have like a, a list of like some prophecies that christians often point to and we'll talk about some of them uh is it fair to say that modern christians or even christians since you know the last two thousand years are projecting ex like Projecting meaning that wasn't intended to be there by the original uh, authors and audiences in terms of like this Absolutely. messianic expectation. So, but I think too, there's, there's a couple things to, to point out here or one, well, at least one that's particularly salient is that the, when Christians do this, when Christians have done this over centuries, millennia now, they're not doing anything unusual or untoward at all because this is basically how jews continued to read their ancient texts um everything began to take on these cryptic meanings they became imbued with this this special uh numinous quality i would say whereby they're coded messages it it just might just crack over the top anywhere <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but even, even uh, I, I think even closer to home, you just look at the you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is what we see. And these provide the scrolls provide uh, a really excellent analog because this is these are texts written by a a Jewish community uh, shortly before the emergence of Christianity. And it's interesting because what we see taking place in the scrolls is very, very similar to what we see taking place throughout the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So, and if you want to, if you want, we can, I, you, you guys had, had asked me to provide like a couple of examples of how this plays out. So, yeah, I think it's illustrative because a lot of the audience and people who are Christians will be very familiar with the prophecies they're familiar with, but these prophecies were being written down or interpreted or read in a broader context. And I think it's useful to see like, what were other very similar religious groups doing at the time? Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to get to, well, we'll, we'll touch on one here in a few minutes where an example of where Christians and the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls are even looking at the exact same text and coming up with, you know, 
different meanings. So um, wait, 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 wait. It might be ambiguous and open into interpretation. What are you talking about? Heresy. The the meaning is uh, so the 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 early the the early Jews and you know the the early Christians who were originally Jews they were they were absolutely uh, they were huge proponents of this reader response kind of uh, approach to the text. What does it mean? What do I think it means? How can I how can I I pretzel it enough to make it mean what I want it to mean is the order of the day when it comes to uh, when it comes to these texts. So um, we have a couple of examples in the scrolls of them forward looking. Now, importantly, it's important to to, to note that um, they're not looking very far into the distant future. Because for the people who wrote and collected the Dead Sea Scrolls, they believed that they were living like on the brink. They were on the edge. The the last days were coming at any moment. Um, you know, God and his army was going to come back and destroy the Romans and establish, you know, an eternal kingdom Where have we in heard their that lifetime. Where have we heard that before? Right. This is <laughs> this is the Christian message. So. Um, but this, so they understood that this was going to be imminent, but it's something that they were still looking forward to and projecting and making predictions about. So the most famous example of this is, is a, a large text known as the War Scroll. Uh, it was found in Cave One, uh, and there were other copies or things that look similar to it found in Cave Four, um, which basically narrates the you know how the battle is going to go the sons of light are going to do battle with the the sons of darkness there's going to be uh seven individual campaigns uh the sons of light and god are going to win three and the sons of darkness and belial are going to win three and then in the final one um god's going to finally break through and have have total victory right and for importantly too, for the people who wrote and collected the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 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 vanquishing of their enemies uh, meant total destruction, and it wasn't just the Romans or even the nations; it was everybody who disagreed with them. It, it was there's there's these ideas that are replete throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls about purifying the land of you know these these impure rival forms of practicing Judaism. So, you know, I, now they were, they were famously pacifists in, in that they wouldn't engage in violent conflict themselves, but they harbored these, uh, these, these, these fantasies of God basically coming in and, and, and killing all their enemies for them. Sounds like so. the, like the Southern bless your heart version of yeah, uh, right. like, I'm not going to do it, but it sure would be a shame yeah. if God came along and destroyed you vile. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I've got a couple of examples of this. Uh, there's one text. Uh, it's catalog number is four Q two eight five. It's called the war rule. And uh, I'll just give you a sampling of this. It, 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 part of it reads like this. This is from fragment seven, lines one to six. Just as it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, 
and the thickets of the forest shall be cut down with an axe, and Lebanon with its majestic trees will fall. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch at Samach, Samach is the word, uh, shall grow out of his roots. And that's uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 34 through 11. 1. So that's the text. And the war rule quotes the whole text, and then it offers an interpretation. And it says, this is the branch of David. Then all the forces of Belial, this is the bad guy, the, the, the cosmic bad guy, shall be judged. And the king of the Kittim, the Kittim is, are, are the Romans. The king of the Kittim shall stand for judgment, and the leader of the congregation, the branch of David, will have him put to death. Then all Israel shall come out with timbrels and dancers, and the high priest shall order them to cleanse their bodies from the guilty blood of the corpses of the Kittim. <laughs> so, and they get all that from. Isaiah chapter 10, uh, verses 34 through 11, verse 1. So there's a, I'll, I'll give you another one here. Uh, this is uh, a scroll from, from Cave 11, which is called the Melchizedek Scroll. And this is from Fragment 2, uh, Column 2, lines 8 through 13. For this is the time decreed for the year of Melchizedek's favor. Now, this is playing on Isaiah 61, verse 2. But interestingly, this scroll has replaced the year of Yahweh's favor with Melchizedek. So this is now the text basically equating Melchizedek with Yahweh. This is the year of Melchizedek's favor. And for his hosts or armies together with the holy ones of God, these are angels, for a kingdom of judgment, just as it is written about him in the songs of David. And here's the quotation from the Psalms. A godlike being has taken his place in the council of God. In the midst of the divine beings, he holds judgment. That's Psalm 82, verse 1. It goes on to provide the interpretation. This scripture also says of him, over it, take your seat in the highest heaven. A divine being will judge the peoples. That's Psalm 7. Verses 7 to 8. Concerning what the scripture says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's Psalm 82, verse 2. The interpretation applies to Belial and the spirits predestined to him, because all of them have rebelled, turning from God's precepts, and so becoming utterly wicked. Therefore, Melchizedek will thoroughly prosecute the vengeance required by God's statutes. In that day, he will deliver them from the power of Belial and from the power of all the spirits predestined to him. The text goes on to talk about this occurring on the Day of Atonement after the uh, the 70th Jubilee. Or, or Yeah, it's the 70th Jubilee, um, which is... Sorry, yeah, I think that's right. Um, or the 70th week, sorry. Uh, which is which is you know related to, uh, to to Daniel's prophecies in chapter nine. So they are forward looking. They're using er earlier texts of scripture to inform them about what's going to happen. But importantly, this is stuff that they expect to happen like tomorrow. 
Okay, so it seems like the earliest Christians who were an apocalyptic cult and were also predicting the imminent end of the earth, uh, they were at home in their Jewish context being Jews themselves and looking back to their uh, scriptures and pulling meaning for the things that they believe were going to happen right now. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. So and I think this leads into... So this is, we see some of this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but what we see most of the time is what I consider, and this is sort of the theme of the video that I made in my series, what I would consider prophecy, but it's all after the fact and it's backwards looking. It's saying, here's what the, our, our ancestors, the Hebrew prophets predicted about what was going to happen and we've seen the fulfillment of that in our lifetimes. So um, you have many examples of this sort of thing. I've pulled up a, a, a few uh, uh, by way of illustration. So one of my favorites is um, in a, a text called The Community Rule, also known as 1QS, uh, in column 8, lines 12 through 16. Uh, and the reason this text is is really interesting is because it uh, it relies upon a prophecy from Isaiah that's also used by Christians and applied to Jesus. So here's a different way of reading Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. When such men as these come to be in Israel, conforming to these doctrines, they shall separate from the session of perverse men to go to the wilderness and to prepare the way of truth as it is written. So basically, it's setting the stage and saying, our community is formed of these, these men who are deeply concerned about, you know, the signs of the times and the 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 last days approaching and the horrible corruption that's taking place within the uh, Jerusalem temple and in the city of of uh, Jerusalem so they cite Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 which says in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh make straight in the desert a highway for our God and they provide this interpretation this means the expounding of the Torah decreed by God through Moses for obedience that being defined by what has been revealed for each age and by what the prophets have revealed for his Holy Spirit. Now, this is probably, uh, I hope this is a text that, that you guys, former, good former Christians yourselves recognize. <laughs> Isaiah 43, in the wilderness, go and prepare a way. Right. Uh, there have been the, several hymns about this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. So, what? What? I mean, what, what's the Christian interpretation of this text? Jared, um, you went to seminary. Oh yeah. Go, yeah, oh, Jared. I didn't pay attention though. Uh, <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> no, no. Um. So, I mean, typically John the Baptist so, is brought to mind here yes. sometimes. Yeah. So. Yes. Exactly. So, except, so uh, there's something very interesting that's happening <laughs> here, though. Um. When Matthew, well, it, it actually appears in all four Gospels, um, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And it's applied to John the Baptist. But when when the Gospel writers, the first being Mark, when he cites this passage, he says that, uh, you know, Isaiah said, uh, there is a voice crying in the wilderness, comma, 
go and prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight the paths for your God. When the people who wrote the community role read this text, and, and they read it properly, like they're the ones who actually uh, read the text closer to what its original intention was, when they read it, they said, uh, there's a voice crying out, comma, in the wilderness, go and prepare a way for Yahweh, make straight the path for our God. Rotations. So they saw it <laughs> as a mandate saying, you got to go in the wilderness to do this. Whereas the Christians saw this as John was in the wilderness and this is what he was doing. It's a subtle difference, but it's really important. And I think it's, it's very illustrative of how malleable <laughs> these texts can be, right? It's a single, like not a single part of the text has not changed. All that's changed is the placement of the comma and it affects the whole meaning mm -hmm. of the text. Wow. So, but this is, this is typical. This is, this is how most of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, understand uh, the Old Testament text. There's a whole collection of um, scrolls from uh, Qumran from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which scholars have designated as peshers, or pesherim is the, the plural. Um, these have been described as commentaries on the Bible, whereby they, 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 they're following through the text of a particular book. There's, you know, one dedicated to the first few chapters of Habakkuk, one dedicated to Nahum, one to Micah. There's peshers to Psalms, to Isaiah. So they follow through the text, basically line by line. It quotes a text of the scripture, and then it provides an interpretation. And then it moves on to the next text. So I'll just read a little bit to give you a sense of how this works out in the Pesher Nahum. So this is from Fragments 3 to 4, Column 1, Lines 6 to 12. The, the quotation begins with Nahum chapter 2, verse 12, the second part. He fills his cave with prey, his den with game. So that's the quotation. Uh, and then the text goes on to say, this refers to, this is the interpretation, right? This refers to the lion of wrath, vengeance against the flattery seekers. This is the halakot, uh, sorry, the dorshe halakot, the seekers of flattery, which is a play on words of the dorshe uh, ha halakot, the seekers of um uh halaka or the way this is the the pet name that the writers of the dead sea scrolls gave to the pharisees it's mm. very tongue-in-cheek um they called them the 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 seekers of smooth things or the seekers of flattery so um vengeance against the flattery seekers because he used to hang men alive as it was done in israel in former times for anyone hanging alive on a tree um the verse applies, behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. So that's Nahum now 2, verse 13. I will burn your smoke, your horde. The sword will consume your lions, and I will annihilate its prey from your land. Your messenger's voice shall no longer be heard. That's the rest of verse 13. The meaning of the passage, your horde are the troops of his army, which are in Jerusalem. Its lions are his nobles. Its prey is the wealth that the priests of Jerusalem gathered, which they give to, uh, to 
somebody. It's it's blank there. So basically, what the writers of this text are doing is they're reading Nahum, and they're saying they're they're looking at these ancient prophecies delivered hundreds of years ago in a completely different historical context, and they're saying, "Oh, but these are this is code." So wherever it says the line of wrath, this is with reference to this Gentile ruler. Wherever it says uh, the, uh, uh, sorry, what does it say? The horde. These are the, the troops of the army who are in Jerusalem. You know, uh, the prey is the wealth of the Jerusalem temple that, that they've, they've obtained through corruption. Uh, so they're basically reading the text as a, like a cipher for understanding what's going on now or what just happened. Quite often what we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls are applications of these prophecies to things that they've just gone through, stuff that's just happened to them. And for them, it makes it real. It, it's almost a form of history telling whereby they say, um, this happened, but look, it was predicted by the prophets way in the distant past. This this means it's 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 significant it's a justification, meaningful. yeah. It's right. Justification, yeah. It's interesting to see how that like usage of the text evolved throughout the centuries from where, right? You know, from where uh, it started, and well, it's also I think uh, important. And Freethinker says something kind of along the lines that he, he says, you know, Isaiah nine definitively prophesies oh, Jesus yeah. did not say this this right. So like, and what you're getting at here, they're using these. <laughs> these texts and sometimes even the same texts that Christians use and getting completely different views from it. Um, well, I, so think, I think, go ahead. Uh, I'll, yeah. I'll say something first and then you go, Jared. I think importantly, this does two things. Uh, first of all, this illustrates to us on the one hand, uh, the first Christians were not doing anything different from anybody else within Judaism. But I think, on the second hand, importantly, this points out that the prof the prophecies as they're applied to Jesus, as they're applied to the church, are nothing special. That's yeah. exactly what I was gonna say. It's like this is nothing new. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of paint us a picture for us around the turn of the century of this commentary on, on prophecy for the past to shed light on current conditions and the christians were doing just that when they were writing the gospels and exactly the same thing right and it um, seems like I, it it seems odd to privilege like like you almost have to like put blinders on to privilege like the prophecies that are handed to you from the from the books that you have bound in the book of the bible now right right uh, to look exactly. at those and say these prophecies are pointing to the thing i believe but ignore all of the other prophecies that were given equal weight by other groups at the same time well, also, too, I think most Christians aren't aware of these early commentaries on prophecies in the Dead Sea Scrolls or extra right. biblical stuff. So if you're a Christian looking back at this, it just makes sense. Oh, this is special. Oh, yeah. It's this one case. It's obviously the way. But once you I can't tell you how many times the context, right at church, people would be like, this obviously talks about Jesus. Did the Jews? Not, can the Jews not read um, their own? How books? did they miss it? How <laughs> yeah. did they miss it? Right. <laughs> So I, yeah. I, there's something else I think that's in, that's important to say in this vein here too, right? Um, so we see what I think this provides us a, a clearer sense of all those times that Paul or the gospel writers, in particular Matthew, 
all those times where they they make a point of saying i learned about this through reading the scriptures what they're not saying is i didn't know about anything beforehand and just was reading the bible and poof this idea came into my head <laughs> that's not what they're saying what they're saying is there's things in in my lifetime that have happened and I'm struggling to find or to apply meaning to what has happened. And I find that meaning in the text of scripture. And that's what's all important for Paul, for the writers of the gospels and for all of Jews. You know, if you could, if you could locate events in your lifetime that occurred, you know, that were predicted, predicted, by the ancient scriptures that makes it significant that makes that means that god is working in god is working through the events that are transpiring and i and think that's I, absolutely critical in terms of understanding why the christian writers are so fixated on reconstructing the life of jesus essentially out of the text of scripture i'm glad you brought that up because just listening to it without that context it sounds a little bit and this isn't a video on mythicism so we're not going to go down that rabbit hole but it sounds a little bit no. like what mythicists say like oh they were just they were looking about their scriptures and building a future from that out of whole cloth but what you're saying is no that they, they like had this experience like okay let me and they use the scriptures like an interpretive framework for the things that they they yeah. had they like look back and like oh this thing happened and it was predicted in the past and here's where it was predicted yep you can see that in the so, this was done in fulfillment phrases too in, in the exactly Gospels. right yeah. exactly so something actually has to happen right for it to be a fulfillment of of a prophecy and i'll i will um so i'll say one more thing about this and then we'll move on um i think i i like a month ago or six weeks ago, I put out a tweet. Well, I think this illustrates the point actually fairly abundantly clear. The founder, as far as we know, the founder of this community who wrote and collected the texts um, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found at Qumran, we're never told what his name is. He's given a, uh, a, a moniker, the teacher of righteousness. All we know about the teacher of righteousness is what appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And all they seem to care about is how the events of his life were fulfillments of earlier scriptures. So they never talk about stuff that happened unless it was predicted by earlier scriptures. So but Kip, how do you know that guy was real? <laughs> right like well you can't defeat I mean, extreme skepticism kit <laughs> we, we don't right but as as historians you you just there there are many things that we just have to we we have to accept as most likely it seems it seems pretty plausible that the way in which the teacher of righteousness is described as you know fulfilling these old testament prophecies not that the old testament prophecies actually have anything to do with them but the way that he's described in their fulfillment of these texts it just seems like a real guy like why not right 
So should we talk about? Um... <laughs> yeah. So now that we've we've taken the audience from prophecy all the way in the hazy days pre Judaism, now we've reached Christianity. Uh, let's look at a couple of very popular prophecies that are held up by modern Christians as fulfillments mm-hmm. that are unique to Jesus. So they they can not only did Jesus fulfill these prophecies, but this is one unique way you can know that the Christian story is true. And, and probably obvious too. And, and it's obvious. It's unambiguous. <laughs> obvious. Right. Uh, and so uh, one of the ones that you, I hear a lot is uh, the virgin birth, which comes from Isaiah seven uh, or that's, you know, how they verse 14. Yes. Right. And so uh, do you want to read it? Yeah. The so you want to, want to tee this up? Isaiah 7, I'll start at uh, verse 14 there. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin. And this is from the NIV. It's not the original Hebrew, but the NIV says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Now, importantly, when this text is cited by uh, Matthew, which is the only place that's cited, he doesn't talk about him eating curds. Um, he just says that a virgin will conceive and will give birth and his name will be Emmanuel. So I think, I think importantly, Jesus' name was not Emmanuel. Um, which, it was like which a nickname. A, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> as far as we know, nobody ever called him Emmanuel. There's no mention of Those him are details, being, okay? We don't worry about that. Yeah, right. So, um, so what's going on here? And, uh, uh. Um, my friend Tyler Vela already already kind of kind of queued this up as well um, in the chat here, didn't he? So Isaiah chapter seven fourteen. Um, we need to do a little bit of background in order to understand this. What's what's going on in this text? Uh, we need to help situate it historically. So um, the book of Isaiah is comprises sixty six chapters. It's one of the largest books in the uh, Hebrew Bible. It's not the largest book in the Hebrew Bible. Um, do you know what the largest book in the Hebrew Bible is by word count? Anybody in the, anybody in the chat? Let's see anybody, anybody in the in chat. The chat. No, my, my guess is any... Psalms. My guess is Leviticus. Oh, Psalms. Is oh, my guess too. Wow. Leviticus, Psalms. Anybody in the chat have any guesses? I, I don't, don't see any. any. Okay. They're all like sleeping. wake wake up you guys so um the largest book by word count in the hebrew bible is actually the book of jeremiah oh wow oh wow it's my boy jeremiah know that yep oh and there simone says jeremiah oh i'm going to assume what they typed it before you said it (laughs) let's let's do that uh yeah let's let's pretend that simone was not cheating you weren't cheating are you simone <laughs> so, okay, so yeah. um, she said I, uh, they they were in time, so we we believe you. Yes, I believe it. I believe it. I know Simone a little bit from Twitter, so one hundred yeah, internet that, points to Simone. That tracks. Uh, so uh, Isaiah is a book that's ascribed to this prophet from the uh, late eighth, early seventh century. Isaiah Ben Amos. Um, he was a priest closely connected to the royal house. He lived between 740 and 680 BCE, and he served in the administration of four kings, 
uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So most of his prophecies had to do with, with two things in particular, two political crises that uh, were faced by, he lived in Jerusalem. I, I don't think I said that. So, so most of his prophecies have to do with two um, crises uh, that were faced down by the city of Jerusalem in his lifetime. The first was the Syro-Ephraimite Wars, and these took place between 734 to 732 BCE. And the second was the uh, invasion of the Assyrians under Sennacherib, uh, which uh, destroyed the kingdom of Israel and basically um, took uh, Jerusalem and the, na the surviving nation of Judah under vassalage uh, to the Assyrians. So most of Isaiah's prophets all you know, deal with these uh, very real political crises. So I'll talk a little bit more about the formation of the book of Isaiah in a bit, because right now we're just focused on chapter 7, verse 14. So the Syro-Ephraimite Syro War, uh, Syria and the northern kingdom known as Israel, or as Samaria, or as Ephraim, uh, they were plotting an invasion against Jerusalem. And this was as a result of Ahaz's refusal to join in a coalition with Syria and with the northern kingdom to go against um, Assyria. Wisely, Ahaz said, we don't stand a fucking chance against <laughs> the Assyrians, so why would I do that? Uh, this pissed off the the Syrians and uh, the northern kingdom, so they actually came down and uh, started preparing for an invasion of Jerusalem. This made Ahaz very nervous. So this prophecy in chapter 7, verse 14, uh, is uttered kind of on the, on, on, you know, while Ahaz is absolutely sweating it out about the forces from Syria and, and Ephraim, which are starting to gather on his, his northern border for this invasion. So um, Isaiah is dispatched by Yahweh in the first part of uh, chapter 7. Yahweh says, go and talk to Ahaz and provide him this prophecy of encouragement. So, um, hey, can you guys read some stuff for me? Sure. If you can pull up Isaiah chapter 7. Got it up. All right, both of you. So, uh, so Isaiah basically pre he he provides he he offers this uh, prophecy of hope to Ahaz, who's really down in the dumps about the fact that uh, that you know he thinks his 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 kingdom is about to be ruined. So uh, maybe Jared, if you could read verses seven through nine. For me. And do. This and I'm reading out what... yeah. I'll be reading out the new revised standard version updated edition for you all. Good. That's a good choice. I'll use the same translation for consistency. Yeah. yeah. Suck up. Oh, sorry. Seven through uh yeah. Seven through uh what verse? Nine. Just okay. the three verses. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. 
and it shall not come to pass, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered, no longer a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. So basically what he's saying to Ahaz is hold fast, be faithful. Um, these entities, Syria and Israel, within 65 years, they're going to be done. There's, It's going to be over. Um, importantly, interestingly, uh, this is a prediction that came true, sort of. Um, I, you know, the, the, the nation of Israel came, you know, it was destroyed by the Assyrians, but it happened like 30 years earlier than, than what, what I say predicted. So I don't know, maybe that means he's like super great at the, the prophesying thing. I, so, I think it's like prices, right? Rules. As long as you don't <laughs> go past, I think it's okay. Right. <laughs> That's it. Right. I think, yeah. I think that works. And in context, the Assyrians are knocking on the door, right? Like they're. They're coming down They're right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I mean, this is already a conflict that's about to, right. I mean, the, this is the reason it's so the, the situation for Israel and for Syria is so dire that, um, you know, because they, it's so dire that they decide they need to, to, to turn around and go South and beat the shit out of, Ahaz for not joining their club in, you know, meeting the, uh, uh, the Assyrians on the battlefield. So that's, that's the first part, but this is not the end of it. Um, so I, Isaiah predicts the end of the Northern kingdom. He's off by like, like 30 years, uh, but in the good way, it happens earlier. So he's, he's way to go, Isaiah. Um, so then Isaiah instructs, Ahaz to ask him for a sign to validate his prediction. So he basically says, this is, you know, Israel is going to end, um, but you should, you should ask for a sign to make sure that we know this is, this is legit. Right. And Ahaz is like, Oh no, no, whatever. Yahweh says I'm, I'm good. I would dare not. I would dare not deign to question the word of Yahweh. And this seems to upset uh, Yahweh, because it's like, well, you're going to get a sign anyways. Uh, and and here is the sign. And Jordan, if you could read then verses 13 to 17. Sure. So verse 13 picks up. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. How far do you want me to go? Uh, verse 17. Okay. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Da, da, da. Mm. the king of Assyria is coming. So I, I kind of, like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I like the way this, this unfolds because, because Isaiah is like, you know, he, he comes up to King Ahaz. And first of all, he's like, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be good. Just, you know, 
check with me for a sign and it has this like no 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 i can't do that and then all of a sudden yahweh's like fuck you and yeah. then he 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 gives him this this prophecy where he's like wow you know if you're too good for a sign then i'm just going to bring the king of assyria all the way down here to mess with you um so but importantly this is like this has nothing to do you'll notice when when jordan read the passage this is not a virgin conceiving this is a young woman and the difference here is is between uh two hebrew words the common word in hebrew for virgin is betula um and this is a woman who has not had sex with a man uh the other word that's which was very important the word, by the way pretty important well i i mean i mean yes, it, de depending on the woman if it was a a respectable woman it was important yeah. Um, so <laughs> this was the ideal, uh, the word used by Isaiah is Alma. Now there are, there is some, uh, dispute about what this, uh, about what this word means about how to correctly, excuse me, how to correctly translate it. I think, um, the best evidence suggests that an Alma within this culture was a woman who had already had sexual intercourse, was, you know, attached to a man, a married woman, but who had not yet given birth to a child. So this is this is a woman who's who's um you know within a sexual relationship but not has not yet has born children. So she is not a betula. She is not somebody who's who's you know not had her hymen broken yet she she's already within a sexual relationship so who is this woman um i mean a number of the, the we don't know right and there are a number of interpretations i think the the majority of scholars think that isaiah's basically brought his wife with him and she's you know probably pregnant and he's pointing at her and saying look this woman uh, is going to give birth to a child. And the important thing here, the sign, the thing that that uh, that that Yahweh is providing to Ahaz is that within two years, or is it three years? It's either two or three years. Uh, by the time the child uh, basically knows good and evil, is 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 the way that that we think of uh uh we we think of of intellectual maturity in this in this instance the uh the sign is that by that time both of these both syria and israel are going to be in in major trouble right so that's the that's the majority interpretation and before i ask your question or comment jared i want to provide i I don't, I know I, I get accused all the time of always siding with the consensus, but I, the, here's an instance where I'm not on board with, uh, with the majority interpretation. I think that this, the Alma, is probably a member of uh, Akaz's household. She is probably a concubine or a wife, and... When the child was born, they probably called him 
Emmanuel. So <laughs> that's so to so like Simone says that all of this that Isaiah is talking about is happening like right now. Isaiah is talking to the king about things that are happening happening today. Now. And Vashanti points out that that the the woman's pregnant is pregnant right now. Yes, yes. So to paint the picture, Ahaz is like the Yahweh's like ask ask me for a sign. Ahaz like no, I'm not doing it. And then so Isaiah gets put on the spot. He's like, uh, that woman over there, she's pregnant. Um, (laughs) before she has a kid, like (laughs) she'll have a kid, and before she's like three years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all going to, this is all going to happen. And that's how you know that I'm telling the truth. Right. That's the message here. Isaiah is not making some kind of statement about the child. He's not making any kind of statement about the woman. He's making a statement about what's going to happen with regards to Syria and to Israel. That's the important point. So, so I had a question about about the yeah. word uh, Alma and and then the other one which I don't remember. Um, Betula. Betula. So obviously this is pre. I mean, so there must have been a translation floating around that had already either altered this word or where would that original Christian idea have come from? Um, I believe was, this comes out of the was Septu- it Septuagint, Septuagint when I believe so. Let me okay. double check. To make sure, because I and think that's what I the think New Testament authors is the have, one that right. actually translates it out as Parthenos. Um, sorry, I got a Isaiah 7 14. Okay. Mm. So, yeah, and for those who don't uh, know, the, the Septuagint is the, 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 the Septuagint is the Greek translation yeah. of the Bible, which was compiled, which was, was written and then compiled sometime in the uh the third, second century uh, BCE. Um, There's some thought that now the way this kind of worked out, even though the Septuagint was translated by Jews for Jews, um, this was the text that was adopted by the Christians, the early church. So they preserved, they, they handed down the old Testament in Greek um, after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 CE, um, the only surviving group of, of the only surviving sect of, of Jews was the Pharisees who basically became, uh, the rabbinic Jews. And they set a focus on, uh, what we now call the Masoretic text, which was a Hebrew text of the Bible. So this is this is sort of the history of, of how these different texts uh, arrived uh, to us in the modern day. The, the Masoretes and the, the Pharisees are preserving the Masoretic text. The Christians are preserving the Septuagint. Um, there's a tiny little community of Samaritans uh, surviving, and they, they preserve what's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's just the Pentateuch. Um, so these are, are your your primary versions of the text. And in the Greek text, uh, the the translator says, uh, And the word Parthenos in Greek is a virgin. Um, so whether or not this was, uh, quite often what happens is we have suspicions about 
um, the the actual um, extent of of Hebrew knowledge that some of the Septuagint translators have. Some of them seem to have known Hebrew really well. Some of them much less well. This may be an instance where he he just he just didn't he didn't have a great grasp of Hebrew when he was translating this and used this word Parthenos in Greek, uh, which means virgin, to translate uh, Alma. That's a possibility. Um, others will suggest that uh, this uh, was a corruption that was introduced by uh, Christians in later centuries to the manuscripts, and this is what what survived in the Greek. I think this is important because it, it highlights that if, if the early Christians were doing that thing where they're looking back at the text, here's a clear example of what the text they were looking at has already been altered from the original text. So even there, the prophecy was something that wasn't even in the original text. And we can look at this example here. Right. Yeah. So, and I, I think I'll say one other thing here. We read, so when, uh, if you remember, you probably don't, um, but when I, when I read the Melchizedek scroll, uh, and I, I made a point, I, I, within the Melchizedek scroll, it quotes Isaiah 61 verse two, but it actually alters the text. Right. So when Matthew quotes, uh, I, you know, Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14 as fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus will be born of a virgin girl. Um, you know, this is this is the text that he provides. He provides the Septuagint text. So, you know, the fact that the text was altered in fulfillment of a prophecy is not unusual. This is something that the that can happen, um, and that you know was not looked down upon either. This was totally, totally accepted. So I I think it's an unresolved issue. I don't know whether this is a Christian corruption or just sloppy, sloppy translation on the part of the original uh, Jewish translator of of the Hebrew text. But I think either way, it works. So I should have probably prefaced this before we got into the fulfilled prophecy thing. But in my view, if so, the, the argument being made is that this event happened. It was predicted prior to that. And the only way that prediction could have been made is if they had some kind of supernatural foreknowledge. That's the argument being made. And so for that specific argument to hold weight with me, I would think that the prediction needs to be um, specific. So it, there's only mm -hmm. one real clear interpretation because if you make a vague, like there will be wars and rumors of wars. Well, okay. <laughs> That's not right. telling me much, you know, it needs to be specific. It needs to actually have happened prior to the events that were fulfilled. And then the events themselves, it needs to be such, it needs to be specific enough such that those events would not be something you could easily predict. Right. And then those right. things need to have come past that. That for me would yeah. be the criteria for like a prophecy that's fulfilled in the relevant sense, in the sense that it would be some some evidence speaking towards a supernatural or divine source, basically. Um, and what's happening here is this is a person who's speaking about what's happening right now today. It's not predicting what's happening hundreds of years later. And even the interpretation used, like it's not specific because he was saying young woman, not a virgin, not, you know, so. So that one, I think we can cross off the list as divine foreknowledge. 
before DM, we move, DM Luca was a trilobite firmed wing. Uh, mentions that Polygia has pretty good criteria for the for fulfilled prophecy. He's got six. Um, yeah. I encourage people to to go and look look them up. I did a I I did a video about this uh, about this very subject on this channel, um, where he goes through these and we talk about some of these prophecies. So. Importantly, though, I want to I, I think it's 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 necessary to stress that within this period, I think this prioritizes or this provides great incentive for people to be as ambiguous as possible. If you're going to deign to be a prophet, right, by by this period. Um, you know, in in the early period when prophecy was all just about advising the king and and making pronouncements about what's going on in the present day, that's a different story. But by this by this time, by the time of Jesus, when Jews are starting to look back on uh, their texts as as um, predictions about what's going to happen to them now. Um, and new texts are being written, which which tend to promote this idea as well. You know, the latest text written in the in the Bible is is the second half of the book of Daniel, where you know this is this is kind of the feature. Uh, Daniel is making these these predictions after the fact about very specific things that are going to happen leading up to the second century BCE. Um, but then it's within his best interest to be as vague as possible about what is going to happen after his lifetime. And we see the same thing. Super with, specific looking Enoch. back. <laughs> yeah. We see the same thing in the book of Enoch. We see the same thing in the book of Jubilees. We see the same thing in uh, the, 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 the Testaments of the 12 patriarchs, which we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls or in the uh test the the aramaic levi document within the dead sea scrolls or within you know pseudo daniel or the apocryphon of jeremiah or many of these other texts that nobody has ever heard of they're doing the same thing um but they're all the other interesting thing is is um like prophecy and apocalypticism we need to think of them as historical enterprises, right? They always start and they couch themselves. It's very important to couch yourself within actual history, within things that have actually happened. So that's where it starts. They're like, they're always forward looking, but after the fact. So I'm writing in the second century, but I'm pretending that I'm writing in the sixth century and looking forward when I'm actually looking backwards. Uh, and I'm going to narrate everything that has happened up to my lifetime as if i was predicting it so that when i actually get to my predictions which are super vague and very imprecise and really open-ended uh they sound like just a continuation of uh what's happened before and because all this stuff came true you can trust what i'm telling you they'll use that method to actually date some of these writings as well right Absolutely. Within the book of Daniel, we have a fairly precise under, you know, we have a pretty clear idea of when these things were written. Uh, everything like, like the prophecies of it, there, there's a couple of things that are going on. Uh, when Daniel talks about things that are happening in the sixth century, uh, 
he gets a lot of stuff wrong, which is weird because he supposedly lived in the sixth century, right? <laughs> but then when you get to the third and the second century, he's incredibly precise <laughs> about everything all the way up until the death of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, which happened in 164 BCE. And then after the death of Antiochus, Daniel then makes a couple of predictions, fairly open-ended, but some sort of precise about, you know, victory for Israel, rah, rah, God's coming back kind of thing. The dead are going to be raised. Poof, we're going to heaven. Um, so he does this. Um, and then, you know, some of this stuff, he, he just gets wrong. So scholars are able to look, oh, well, you clearly don't understand history until here right it, and you're good uh from for this this like 40 year period of time up to 164 where you predict the death of antiochus the fourth but then after that it'd be like i wonder when it was written it'd be like yeah. if a q conspiracy <clears throat> site discovered writings or whatever allegedly (laughs) from the 18th century and it got stuff about the 15th century eh, not so great and then as it got up to trump's presidency it's like nailing everything and then suddenly it just goes off the rails you know yeah um yeah yeah uh you got it real quick want to catch up on the chat uh so stephanie says that she loves watching uh you live kip uh she enjoys your channel but she does have one critique uh, Super chat for five dollars says that you need a bow tie. <laughs> really tie no! together. No, uh, no. <laughs> so take that. You I know, will wear. Sword. I will wear a tie dye hoodie before I wear a bow tie. <laughs> uh, and DMs has a mustache, uh, so yeah. that might be more doable. I, uh, I used to have one. Um, I yeah, I won't pull up the pictures, but I but maybe. I mean, next month is is November, right? Maybe. Yeah, we should do that. that. There you go. Yeah, there you go. You, should, you and Jared can. Yeah, we can have a race. <laughs> I would not want to race no. Jared in growing facial hair. <laughs> I, I won't race him either, but That's I'm a uh, I'm a good sport. You know what's uh, weird though is I so I I grow facial hair here and and here, but nothing here and nothing here. Have you so. seen Joe Dirt? Um, like the movie with uh, David Spade. No, I haven't seen that one. Uh, so he grows facial hair like that. Like, you mean to tell me it grows in all white trash like that on its own? It's like yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. I like to think of it. I'm you know, hockey season has started. Um, I like to think of it as the Eric Carlson look. There Eric Carlson was a was was a Hall of Fame, future Hall of Fame defenseman for the Ottawa Senators and then the San Jose Sharks. He's playing in Pittsburgh right now. So it's the it's the Eric Carlson look guys it's gold what, one last thing from stephanie she pointed out that everyone in the chat seems to be very knowledgeable in this oh. stuff so that's great i'm glad that we've we've got a, a good community building here but anybody who's watching who's like i didn't know any of this stuff don't feel bad this is a very highly self-selected group and that's and this is as, as like just skeptics this is why we talk to experts right because you can't possibly know everything why would you just walk off the street knowing this stuff you know so that's why we have people like kip on so that we can uh uh so we can and all i just hope on. people learn things right like right. even if you don't feel like you're you're uh i hope you're learning stuff stephanie so uh moving on to probably uh i arguably i'd say the single 
best or the, the, the one that is perceived at least as the best by modern Christians, um, mm. the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. This is one yeah. that whenever the topic of prophecy comes up, this is one that is always pointed to. And if you're just like reading it and anyone who's been to church for any length of time has heard it, uh, it's kind of sounds like Jesus just on, on the face of it. Right. He's talking about that. He'll be, why. yeah. Uh, the, the Lord will crush him with his affliction. Uh, he, he'll be bruised for our transgressions, these sort of, of punishment motifs. And it, if you're just reading it at, just as that, and then they're putting it next to Jesus, I'm sure it sounds an awful lot like a crucifixion. So I, I get these, I get these ads on uh, my, my YouTube ad selection. I get these, um, all these ads from this, this Jewish, messianic group called one for israel i don't know if you guys have, have seen these but they're uh, this is kind of their they're they're a christian they're a messianic jewish organization so Christians. uh yeah sort of <laughs> yeah so and, and this is like this is their big pitch right it's like any you know any jew who cracks open their their tanakh and they look at isaiah chapter 53 it's obviously talking about jesus how could you miss it it's just it's right it's right there um so uh there's a lot uh to get into here and i think the place to start is just how to understand uh isaiah 53 within the book of isaiah We'll start there, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, about the text itself. So, if you're unaware, um, the Book of Isaiah is is a so as I mentioned, it's it's sixty six chapters. Isaiah Ben Amotz lived in the late eighth, early seventh centuries, and this is a text that appears to be attributed to him. Now, the reason I say that is because the entire text of the book of Isaiah, and this may surprise some people, uh, the entire text of the book of Isaiah is basically written in the third person, um, in a manner of speaking. So I, I, should, I should qualify that. So it's their first person oracles throughout the first uh, 34 chapter, or sorry, uh, 33, 34 chapters thereabouts, they're first-person oracles. Um, a speaker is saying, this is what I saw, this is what Yahweh communicated to me, but he never self-identifies. There are six places within uh, the first half of Isaiah, between chapter 1 through 33, where there's like what we call a proscription or an introduction to an oracle, which says, this is the vision of Isaiah ben Amotz that he saw during the reign of Uzziah when he was in the temple, or you know, he saw during the reign of Ahaz after um, he dug a well. It, you know, it provides these contexts. So, right from the start, I think it's important to point out that just on a surface level, you can look at this text and see that. This isn't just Isaiah writing this stuff down and then he's done with it. There are people who are coming along and providing 
editorial, even just minor. If if you're you're extremely conservative, you should be able to accept that. People came along later and provided editorial um, framing to the work of Isaiah. So the way critical scholars view the entire book is that a lot of this stuff probably comes from the 7th, 8th century. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which we read, stems from the time period of Isaiah, was probably, you know, might have been a prophecy uttered by the actual Isaiah in the court of Ahaz. Um, all of this stuff is restricted to the first 30. 35-ish chapters of Isaiah. Um, and the the reason for seeing this stuff together is that it's all concentrated thematically on the same stuff. It all has to do with the Sour Ephraimite War, which makes sense because this occurred, uh, you know, in the, the late uh, 8th century, and it has to do with the Assyrian invasion of Israel and the, um, you know, the threat of Assyria to Jerusalem in later years, which happened in the uh, in the very early seventh uh, century. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think I got that right. Anyways, um, <laughs> we'll so, send, we'll no, no, sorry, that's all. That's all eighth century too. Sorry. Anyways, um, so. Uh, the way scholars look at this is that this stuff all probably dates back to this time period. But then there's a strange thing that happens at the end of chapter 35. The prophecies end, and then chapters 36 through 39 is just narrative. It's a story of King Hezekiah and Isaiah. It's like three or four, it's like four chapters. And interestingly, it's also lifted verbatim out of second kings so it's not even original it literally is a word for word recreation it, it's it's just cut and pasted there's some minor variations but it's the same text basically appearing in this section of isaiah and the way scholars tend to look at this is that ah this probably was like originally one single individual book uh Isaiah's followers, he had admirers uh, later in, in life who, who started writing down stuff that he said. They collected it together, um, and then they put the whole thing into a collection, and they added this, this narrative uh, conclusion to it, and that's that. Uh, there's reasons for thinking that, which have to do... I won't get into it, but there's, you know, there's compositional reasons for thinking that. So... That's Isaiah chapter 1 to 39. <laughs> Not that copy and paste of that keyboard, Kip. Debunked. Well, checkmate, no. skeptics. They, 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 you've got, you know, one here. Fake news. Another here. <laughs> and you're, you, you do it the old fashioned way. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. So that's what scholars call first Isaiah or proto Isaiah written in the late 8th, early 7th century uh, BCE. And uh, then the, the next section of Isaiah starts in chapter 40 and goes to chapter 55. This is what's called Deutero or Second Isaiah. And there's a, there's a very obvious shift 
in um, in the rhetoric and the way in which uh, the text starts to unfold. Uh, no longer are these first person, like re remember Isaiah is speaking in the first person, even though he's, he's speaking anonymously. This is all gone. It's not this, it's, it's now just third person uh, sort of narration talking about what's happening, you know, around the writer. Um, this section of text is centered on um, a collection of individual poems. There's four of them. They're called the Servant Songs. Uh, these are Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4, 49, verses 1 to 6, 50, verses 4 to 11, 52, verses 13 through 53, verse 12. And these are deeply moving, very, uh, very well-constructed poems in which um, Israel as a nation is featured uh, and uh, analogized as, a, as the servant of Yahweh. And we see this explicitly in a few places um, in, uh, in Isaiah 41 verse 8 and uh, in 43 verse 10. I'll, I'm just going to pull that up here quickly. Uh, 41, 41 verse 8, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking to you about what I'm talking about here. So, um, here, 41, uh, this is the, oh, sorry, that's, yeah, so this is before the actual servant songs, um, uh, this oracle starts, who has roused the victor from the east, summoned him from service, I'm starting in verse 2, he delivers up nations to him and tramples kings underfoot, he makes them like dust with his sword, he drives stubble with his bow, he peruses them and passes on safely, scarcely touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generation from the beginning, I, Yahweh, am first, and I will be with the last. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near to me. Each one helps the others, saying one to another, take courage. The artisan, am I in the right text? Sorry. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'm going to verse 8. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, the artisan encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer encourages the one who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they fasten it with nails so it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. So that's the NRSV. This is the introduction to the servant songs, where the servant is clearly identified as the nation of Israel, or I would say at a minimum as a segment of, as a portion of what, you know, people who called, identify themselves as Israelites, who's, who's like going to be the future of the kingdom. So this is kind of the focus of second Isaiah. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah, Jordan. I was going to say uh, a while back, a friend of mine uh, was 
brought up this proof as reason why Christianity was true. And I'd heard the Isaiah thing before, but I hadn't delved into it post deconversion. Right. And he mm -hmm. was like, this is clear evidence. And as because he's like, this is a servant. And there's only one way to interpret this servant is clearly Jesus because it doesn't say who this servant is. And I was like, OK, well, let me check. And then I'm like, re I read 53. I was like, OK, well, let me look at the context and went back a few chapters. I was like, wait a minute. It tells you exactly who it is. <laughs> it tells you who the servant is. Right. So there's four of these songs. They're all very similar to one another. They're all they're they're all written about. You know, they're the personifications of Israel. Um, and the theme of the servant songs tends to be that Israel is now so and this is how we 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 tend to know that these were written at a much later period of time and not in the eighth, seventh century BCE, because it would be weird for Isaiah to write about you know all the 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 painful turmoil of the you know of the people of Israel living in a foreign land and you know you know mourning the destruction of the temple. I mean Isaiah looks out his window and goes, yeah the temple's right there. That's that's good. Yeah. We're okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I mean yeah I used to joke when I was in grad school I I, I had a buddy um in in and we had classes together we used to joke about this we're like uh oh i'm isaiah i'm writing these prophecies i have no idea what any of this means but i just feel like i have to keep writing this stuff <laughs> this makes no sense at all i mean but whatever this is god telling me to write this stuff that doesn't make any sense i better keep it i better write it down and no doubt everybody for like 150 years is going to continue to preserve this stuff that doesn't that make any sense make any sense within no relevance this no like th that doesn't happen like the i mean it's 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 very cost within the ancient world. There's an enormous commitment of resources to just writing stuff down. Yeah. You only write stuff down if it's going to be useful and meaningful to you. So any of this stuff that like has nothing to do with what's going on, you're going to, you're going to toss it. You're going to go, whatever. I've got better things to focus on. So um, within the context of, of the servant songs, Isaiah like 40 through 55 it's written from it seems to be written outside of the land of israel it's focusing on jerusalem out there um so most scholars tend to think these were written uh by the exilic community in exile in babylon um and self-reflecting on their plight as a means of atonement and atonement in the uh, like in in the natural sense in the in the actual sense of the word this is they they believe that their sufferings are basically a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of former generations. So the former generations uh, were evil. They they um, displeased Yahweh. Yahweh has punished them by you know. Ending the Davidic line, remember, mm -hmm. exiling us and sending us off to this foreign land, destroying the temple. Uh, so here we are. We are serving the punishment. We are the atonement. Our suffering is going to provide for making things right in the future. So it's always it, this is the stuff that's forward looking. 
of course, within within Isaiah as well, it's important to to note that that there's there's specific uh, datable stuff here. Um, there is is clear mention of uh, Cyrus the Great, who is a Persian ruler um, in the uh, in the sixth century. Isaiah identifies him by name and calls him the Messiah of God. So all of this makes historical sense within the uh, you know the the Babylonia exile kind of at the point in which Cyrus is is um, making inroads into Babylon and uh, and and starting to yeah. establish the Persian Empire right talk so about buttering up the uh, the authorities there <laughs> right there you yeah. go I, I so much of this stuff I think and and I'll I'll I haven't I haven't shilled for like at least an hour and a half now. So uh, when I, uh, the, the title of my course um, that's offered through myth vision uh, MVP courses is um, real Israelite religions, facts on the ground and propaganda in the Bible. And this is the kind of stuff that I go into. It's really important to, to try and set okay. uh, your focus on, on like there's, there's a political reality within these texts, which were by and large collected by people who were like politically active. Like the these elite. were power yeah. brokers, right? So they had interest in the goings on around them. So of course they're going to, to write royal propaganda or write propaganda about, you know, whatever, whatever ruler they're trying to suck up to. Like this is just how this this literature works. So that's second Isaiah. I'll say I'll, I'll just introduce third Isaiah that, and then you can say something, Jordan. And we'll get into Isaiah fifty three. So third Isaiah. There's another shift that takes place uh, between chapter fifty five and chapter fifty six, where suddenly there's a temple again, the second temple. It's built. Um, the writer uh, is you know in the temple courts. He's writing within Jerusalem. He's talking about, um, you know, this restored kingdom of Judah. Uh, so scholars look at this and go, well, these are prophecies that were, you know, uttered or written, um, you know, after the exile. Once everybody's, once, once these people have come back into Judah, have, you know, started to rebuild Jerusalem, have rebuilt the temple. They have this, they're, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They have these hopeful expectations about the future of their nation. These are reflected in, uh, in what's called Trito or Third Isaiah. So basically what you're looking at here, you've got Isaiah writing in the late 8th, early 7th century. You've got like a 100, 150 year break until the exile sometime between 586 and the construction of the temple, the second temple in 515 BCE. That's when second Isaiah was written. It was written in Babylon. And then third Isaiah is written sometime after 515 BCE, after the, the second temple has been built. And it provides for this hopeful expectation of this, this new nation. Okay, go. And then so, we'll talk about Isaiah 53. <laughs> One thing that uh, I, I definitely wanted to touch on, and we're, we're at two hours, so I oh, want to get sorry to... about that. <laughs> no, no worries. I just want to get to a conclusion. Uh, but one thing I wanted to make sure we touched, and I don't know why my 
that's I swear my screen is green, not blue. Uh, so it looks uh, good to me. One thing that I definitely want to touch is you have to remember when someone like Matthew is writing uh, these these texts, they like you said, they have a, a events that they're trying to rationalize or put in context. They have these prophecies in front of them when they're writing this story. It's not like uh, so the only way we know where Jesus was born or the only way we know Jesus allegedly said X, Y or Z is because these people who have the prophecies in one hand and the story in the other are the ones telling us, right? And so you can't rule out the possibility that the story itself was written in such a way to ensure that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. Uh, because, and so that's that's another like kind of epistemic possibility you have to keep in mind if you're going to use these as proof for the supernatural. Yep. Sorry, my wife is just coming home, so things are there's there's dog craziness in my house for, okay. well, for 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 a minute or two. So um, yes, that's that's absolutely right. Um, so uh, importantly, I want to uh, I, I something else I want to point out is Isaiah fifty three is interesting because it gets promoted as this as as this like death knell. Um, you know, this is this is the proof of uh, fulfilled prophecy very interestingly within the new testament if you look at the new testament carefully i don't really think that this is a prophecy you'll notice that throughout the gospels there is only one citation of isaiah 53 and that occurs in matthew 8 verse 17 he cites isaiah 53 verse 4 that's the only place where anything from Isaiah 53 is directly cited. And Matthew talks all... about prophecy all the time. Right. Yes. So <laughs> yeah, that's his thing. <laughs> yeah. So but what does happen is, and this is this is sort of the nature. We talked a little bit about this. Um, and I'll I'll mention this again. What's happening within the gospels is uh, they are the the gospel writers are are Jewish. Um, or at least very, very familiar with Judaism and with the, the Jewish scriptures. They are reading them, and then they're using them to contextualize the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and, and the mission of Jesus. So what you do see throughout the Gospels are not prophecies so much as they are echoes of scripture, but it's this, it's like the same sort of thing like we see you know one of the one of my favorite examples is the gospel of luke uh basically constructs his story of jesus on the model in uh first kings chapter 18 through second kings chapter 10 the stories of elisha elijah and elisha provide like the template that that that's the 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 structure for his retelling of the story of Jesus. And it's patently obvious. Like when you sit down with the Gospel of Luke next to these stories of Elijah and Elisha, you can literally like read them side by side and see the same thing happening. But I mean, that's kind of what all the Gospel writers and then Paul is doing with Isaiah 53. He sees that this has something to do with promoting... Uh, the ideas of who Jesus was and what he did. But Matthew is the only one who comes right out and says, this is what Isaiah said, and it was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. 
And he says that only of Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4. So I like to say that the, the song, this song, provides texture to the story, particularly the story of Jesus's uh, arrest and death. Um, now, uh, I'll just I'll just go through a little bit of this fairly quickly. Uh, there's lots of parts. I mean, and that tends to be the focus. There's lots of parts within Isaiah 53 which look like they align perfectly with Jesus, right? And of course, that's by design because you know the writers are have Isaiah 53 open and they're writing their story to align with what appears in Isaiah 53. But importantly, there are some significant differences. Uh, problematically, the servant in Isaiah 53 is depicted in several places, verses three to four, verses ten. He's he's you know. Uh, depicted as being very sick. He's got physical ailments. Like he's not, he's frail. He's he's not a well person. Yeah. And he's- So much of that that people have to look away from him. <laughs> right, yeah. He's, yeah he's, 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 he's exactly. This doesn't really fit with the, the gospel presentation of Jesus. Uh, perhaps even more problematically in uh, verse 10, uh, Isaiah 53 says that the servant will see his offspring, his children, literally. Um, you know, if if we're if we're trying to do as much justice as we can to the text within the original context, this can only mean that the servant actually sees his children. And you know, if this is a personification of uh, Israel, uh, I I actually have my wife put a dog here in the room with me. So thank, <laughs> thanks, Lisa. You, you uh, have dogs. I I have the I, there's probably like six of them in my house right now. So, um, anyways, that is many, uh, many dogs. That is a lot. <laughs> uh, so um, the, you know this is, and within within the context of what the sermon songs are, you know. This is basically the nation of Israel seeing the next generation of those people who are going to continue the kingdom, right? So, you know, it's uh, now what I, I, the way I think about this text, it's not just, it's not just, you know, the personification of Israel. Um, within the context in which this was written during the exile, very interestingly, uh careful observers will notice that throughout the servant songs there are echoes of other texts too in particular the servant songs appear to be riffing off of another prophet um the prophet jeremiah uh who lived during the uh the end of the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. He watched the conquest and the destruction of the temple and the exile. He watched all this happen. Um, there are a number of texts within Jeremiah, uh, in particular in chapters 11 through 20, which are called the Confessions. Uh, and they're called this because, Jer I mean, Jeremiah spends a lot of time, uh, and he's pretty vile. He spends a lot of time complaining about 
all the things that people are doing wrong. He's very fiercely critical of the the, the kings of um, of Jerusalem, rightly so, because it's it's kind of a gong show leading up to the exile, leading up to the the conquest of Babylon. There, so he's very frustrated by that. Um, but he's also persecuted by members of the uh, aristocracy because of things that he's loudly proclaiming about the king. So uh, he there within the book of Jeremiah, there are these so-called confessions or these deeply personal uh, introspections about the suffering that he is enduring on behalf of the message that he is delivering to Yahweh. Um, I don't think we, we, we won't take the time to read them, but if you look at a couple of texts, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. This is the second servant song. Um, if you read that alongside of Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 to 10, which is Jeremiah's own calling to be a prophet, you're going to see a clear relationship between these two texts. They look very, very similar to one another. Jeremiah famously says that he has been called out of the womb. This is a, a phrase that is then used in uh in isaiah chapter 49 um more significantly isaiah chapter 53 verses 7 to 8 where the text says that uh that the servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter and he's silent and he doesn't say anything this is a direct reflection of something jeremiah says about himself in jeremiah 11 verse 19 and then in jeremiah chapter 20 verse 7 to 9 he echoes the same sort of sentiments about how he's quiet before his accusers intentionally so the way that i look at the servant songs are uh thusly whoever's writing them has the book of jeremiah in front of them and he's looking at texts that are already there in jeremiah and he's using that so he's using the he's using the figure jeremiah and his sufferings as a prophet and kind of as a projection of what this servant is, who is a representation now of all of Israel in, in its suffering on behalf of, uh, of the, the whole nation. So, so to read, we kill it. Yeah. To read all of that <laughs> back. Uh, so first of all, the suffering servant, even though it does sound like Jesus kind of, if you, if you're reading it, it's talking about him being bruised for iniquities, all those sort of things. They identify explicitly who the servant is. The servant is Israel. The servant is like a personification of Israel. The book yeah. itself, the structure is based on previous prophets. Um, but even if you wanted to say it had a dual meeting, it was talking about the present and then also the future. If you want to go that route, you have to remember that the gospel writers had Isaiah, in front of them or knew it at least and so when they're writing matthew when they're writing their own gospel they're doing it with mm -hmm. this in mind and it doesn't I, I think it's important to point out that doesn't necessarily mean they were lying or making no up because for no. them that 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 like you said earlier when they're just like jews were at the time this happened today i'm gonna go look for scripture to like augment or to justify or to frame the things that I know, right? So they yeah, say, exactly, right. And so they're like, oh, Jesus suffered. That's just like this, just that he, they were talking about in Isaiah. Let me make that clear by structuring my story that way. Exactly. Does that all read correctly? Yeah, that that's all good. Yeah. Um, now I I'll say a couple other things about like the the 
the the structure of the book of Isaiah. In you know, we have several copies from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Very interestingly, um, the evidence that we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to reflect already like this this uh, idea that this is not just all one continuous prophecy from Isaiah ben Amos. They say it seems to be um, surviving in a couple different forms and possibly already understood or understood by the people who, who were copying these texts as a collection, not just of the prophecies of Isaiah, but also these other prophecies that were uttered later. Um, we have among most of the copies, we have a few of the entire book, but most of them preserve either only the first half or only mm. the second half. Uh, and then something else I'll point out in within the Gospel of Matthew, and this is something that most people miss. Uh, Matthew, whenever he quotes from Isaiah, says this was mentioned by the prophet Isaiah. Mm. But then there's one place, I think it's in Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to get the reference wrong, but there's one place where he cite he he provides a quotation from Isaiah 65 or 66. And he, but the way he introduces it, he says, this was said by the prophets. So what is Isaiah reading? Does he have, um, you know, a book of Isaiah that only has like first Isaiah. And then he's got this other collection of, you know, anonymous prophecies that appear within, you know, the second half of Isaiah and understands these to be exactly what they are. Anonymous prophecies uttered by anonymous mm. prophets. Interesting. So he may not yeah, have right? even had Isaiah as we currently have it today. I think maybe not. There's some other weird things happening in uh, in Matthew 2, which make me think that he's got different arrangements <laughs> of prophets. There's famously, he, he, he misattributes uh, a quotation from Zechariah to Jeremiah. And this may just be a mistake. Uh, it may be in this weird, intentional, cryptic thing that he's doing. He might be playing 4D chess. Um, or <laughs> He's next or, level over here. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or uh, another possibility we have to entertain is that he's reading a scroll where the prophecies of Zechariah are included with prophecies of Jeremiah and all attributed to him. This is I, this is kind of how this works. That reminds me of a, a thing that Bart Ehrman mentions from his school days, where he was doing a paper on, I think it was Mark, and like Mark says X, but it actually hit the other sources say Y, and so he wrote this whole long paper about like trying to, well maybe it was always this, and he got an A, but he said the professor wrote in the margins like, sure, or maybe Mark just made a mistake, and maybe. Ehrman said Ehrman's like. <laughs> That's so much simpler. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think so. Uh, we're coming up on two and a half hours, so I want to hit the one yeah. super chat we have and then um, wrap up. So we had a question, uh, $10 from Henry, Henry Morant. He says, uh, sorry, I'm a bit behind, but doesn't Daniel get his prediction of Antiochus the fourth Epiphany's death wrong? It says he will die in Israel, but he actually right. died in Persia. That's right. Yes. So, um, and this, yeah, this is this is a very good point. Yes, uh, the the writer of the book of Daniel is not a great historian. 
so he's and and even in terms of his retelling of events that are that are close to him, even though he's going to get stuff like very closely accurate, close to his time, there are you know there 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 are a few instances which show to us that you know he he was he was mistaken about uh, about the broad strokes of of what was taking place. So yeah, there's a there's a good example of uh, of of him. Uh, getting getting the precise details of Antiochus's Antiochus's death wrong so so yeah. that uh that mistake in Daniel uh would be very concerning for a certain conception of the bible that's common in Christianity today uh it wouldn't necessarily be a problem for ancient Jews or even modern Jews. Uh, we, so mm -hmm. we're actually going to be talking about that topic with Fashanti, date to be determined, because <gasps> I, I owe her a outline. So the, that's on me. She's waiting on me. Uh, but we're going to, we are going to be talking Very about exciting. anti Semitism in atheism and specifically oh, ways yeah. which atheists kind of use their Christian goggles when they're looking at Judaism. So that's coming up uh, next week. Very excited. Thanks partially to Dr. Kip for getting us connected. We're going to be talking to Dr. Josh about uh, slavery. Wait a minute. Wait. Oh, I was going to say, is it going to be about slavery? slavery? Yeah, of course it is. It's Dr. Josh. <laughs> like, what else would you All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, sure, other topics. Yeah. Right. It, uh, uh, but we're going to be talking about slavery, specifically like in the context of the ancient Near East, contrasting biblical slavery to that and then also to today. Uh, so that is going to be next week. Um, so that's nice. what we've got going on. Uh, please do subscribe if you're interested in that so you don't miss anything. If you wanted to see any of those early, I would say see the Patreon, but we don't have that time travel thing figured out yet, so we can't do live streams <laughs> early. But if you want to see our pre-recorded stuff early, you can see our Patreon. Or if you want to see Dr. Kip's stuff, you can go to his Patreon. Uh, so remind everyone, we talked about it earlier, but remind everyone what you've got coming up, Kip, so they uh, can be on the lookout for that. All right, so I am actually, it'll probably be after the weekend, but I will be publishing a new video, interestingly, all about the Book of Daniel uh, and the evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Book of Daniel because I keep hearing all this, uh, all this, this misinformation from apologists about how the Dead Sea Scrolls absolutely prove that Daniel could not have been written in the second century BCE, and that is just patently false. In fact, uh, the what the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us about the book of Daniel is fascinating and very interesting and actually helps us to understand the construction and the development of this book fairly close in time to when the last parts of it were being written. So that uh will be coming out in in a few days but maybe not until after the weekend and then of course there's uh there's a star wars video waiting over on my patreon if you're uh if you're super interested so very exciting. and then oh uh, i'll say one other thing i think it's on october 27th i will be appearing on uh potential theism this is a new new ish youtube channel he's rather clearly he's rather narrowly set his uh his uh his scope on uh the writings and the ideas of one richard c carrier 
Hmm. Um, yeah. I have been I have been asked to come on his channel along with the excellent uh, Dr. James McGrath, and uh, we are going to be discussing uh, Richard Carrier's last uh, word vomit screed, all about how terrible critics have been of his work. Well, so that's no coming critic. on October 27th. No critic of his work has ever understood it. And that's the problem. No, so, we don't yeah. get it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So thanks everyone for sticking to the end because you made it all the way. Thank to you the for end. staying awake. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> impressive. Particularly for it's those late who for you guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's only 1130 and that's like two hours before my bedtime. Um, <laughs> Did you have like some <laughs> some nuclear physics thing to to do over the in the no, middle of the night? I keep or... I keep all of that at work. I don't do nuclear physics at home usually. Oh, okay. But what we do here, though, at the end is we talk about a bias or a fallacy. Uh, so today's bias of the day is the priming bias, uh, and this bias I think is uh, kind of tangentially related to what we're talking about. It's kind of like that effect where you buy like a Honda Civic and then suddenly you see Honda Civics everywhere, you know? Uh, the uh, priming bias or priming effect... My is son just when... bought one, by the way. Yeah, there, you, there you go. See? <laughs> and now you'll be primed to see them everywhere. So uh, when uh, you are presented with information, the human brain being a pattern-seeking organ uh, has a tendency to look for connections with that, with everything else you see around you. And this is something that can be measured and it's something you have to keep in mind when you're like doing experiments or something that, uh, for instance, if they do polls, they have to be careful with the way that they phrase their questions because they don't want to, or that they, they'll do like the same question before and after some information. Uh -huh. So they don't prime, you know? Um, and so as skeptics, this is something we should be aware of ourselves, that the, the thing we have recently seen can inform our perceptions. And we also should be aware when we're looking at evidence from a survey or something like that, that, you know, the, some of the questions we can ask is, did they take priming into effect? What order did they ask these questions? And all those sort of things hmm. are relevant. So there's your bias. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks again for sticking all the way to the end. Really appreciate it. Subscribe to both our channels so you can see our stuff coming up. And until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.